Welcome to episode 191 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies for the casual spike. My name is Stanislav, back in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. Stanislav, welcome back. Well, it's not like you were not in Chicago. You just were in a, a house on literal fire... You know, the walls just burning down around you, no electricity. Well, yeah, and I absconded to the suburbs. I saw Dave after you guys recorded because I, 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 we spent the night in Oak Park. Did you crash on Dave's couch? I wish, but he won't let me into the house anymore after what I did to his basement. He brought me coffee and he brought me deck boxes back that I had <laughs> successfully foisted on him. He brought him no. back. He said, he said, we don't want these at my house. Can you take these <laughs> back? And I was like, I guess I'll take them. Some deck boxes in need of housing. Okay, that's that's a long story. We're yep. not getting into it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you couldn't have them presented during just, you know, just lying around the home? No. When my when my wife found out what's in all these boxes that have been lining our hallway for the last month or two, she was like, what <laughs> podcast? She's, she's like, these aren't the tiles we were talking about remodeling the bathroom with? <laughs> Basically not. Also with us, the godfather, Dave Harbarger. Hey, Dave. I'm doing a little better. It's Things are getting better. Things are getting better every day. Let's stay positive. I'm here to stay positive. You got to stay positive. I mean, there's a cat on uh, Stanislav's camera, so life's good. I've decided I don't like I don't like cats. After all these years, <sighs> I'm done. I'm good. Oh my god! I'm sure your cats what? are very so, nice. I don't ever want another cat. So you you like you like puppies that like bite you and go to the bathroom on the floor? No, not really. Maybe you're just not a pet person anymore. But I don't. Ha- well, it's been a long road, and now I have this puppy. I got to tell you though, I did take this dog on a car ride with me this little puppy because I felt bad yeah. having to create him again. So I was like, all right, come on, you can come with me to go pick the kids up, put him in the car. And he just turned his face into the corner of the, the, where the seat meets the door in the front seat. And I was like, you're okay, puppy, you can ride, you can ride. And he was like, uh, I don't like this car. And he just stared into the corner. Like he was oh, no. in the last scene of the Blair witch. <laughs> it was crazy <laughs> for the entire car ride. So he's just as good as your, as your last dog in the car. Yeah. We found the way to trigger his anxiety. Bernie's Mountain Dogs, well known for their anxiety triggers. It's good. He's, he's, oh it's good to have a dog that's more anxious than me. <laughs> so Dave, you've been without cats for several months now. Why do you decide you don't like them? Tired of cleaning up pee on rugs that I don't want to get rid of. That's oh. why. Oh, well, you know. You had you had old cats. They, you know, they, they break down like cars. That's true. Unfortunately. And podcast hosts. Yeah, like us too. Their PP is legendary. On this week's show, we are registering decks with Dominaria United's newest lords in a special tribal edition of Sleeve, Believe, Heave. We're playing with elves. We're playing with goblins. We're playing with merfolk. I'm playing with my cat while I deliver this message to you. We also are doing a preview of NRG Minneapolis, which is this weekend. Is it this weekend? It yeah, is this weekend. This weekend. So if you hear anything from this and you are in Minneapolis, go and register for uh, the Energy Trial Weekend. Saturday is Modern. Sunday is Pioneer. It's a 10K and a 5K. Go check it out. We'll talk about it more in a minute. But if you're hearing this and you're there, please go register and, and enjoy a great event. Before all that, though, we do have a bit of housekeeping. Shout out to the newest patrons to join the Dive Down Nation. We got Drew B and Michael M. Thank you, thank you. If you'd like to support the show, you can find us over at patreon.com slash the dive down. 
deck boxes have been, I think, mostly delivered. Yeah, I can confirm that 96% of the boxes I sent out were delivered. I think five or six were returned. I will be going to pick those up uh, in the next couple of days. And so I will try to ship them out again or reach out to people on Patreon to get updated addresses, I'm assuming. But uh, yeah, you should have them. If you don't, come, come and find me. Send me an email or something. I'll be on my mobile. You can also support us while playing Magic with a Mana Trader subscription. Promo code the Dive Down 15 gets you 10% off your first two months of renting Magic Online cards. They do have these new lords. We can confirm that's where we got them to make this episode. You didn't buy all you didn't buy your entire deck? Not on yet. Magic Online? Not yet, but I probably will eventually. These are good budget decks on Magic Online. Just saying. Yeah, mine ran Force of Negation, so it's not that cheap. Mm, mm, mm. One of the nice things about NRG trials is that you can buy cards from their online store to pick up at these tournaments. And if you use promo code DIVE8, you'll get 8% off your order from NerdRage Gaming. Pick it up in Minneapolis. I think by the time you're hearing this, it'll be a little too late. But just for future reference, you can pick it up at tournaments. You can always use DIVE8, tournament or not. And we encourage you to do that. Just buy some cards. Buy a card or two. Those new Warhammer Commanders, buy them as singles. What's a week in life without having some random letter arrive and you're like, what's, what's, oh, that magic card I forgot I ordered. Love it. Oh, that borderless Shivan Reef. I've been waiting forever for borderless (laughs) Shivan Reefs. I tell you what I haven't been waiting for, uh, borderless uh, Carpools and Forests that I continue to just pull out of out of uh, dominaria packs that i opened or borderless yavamaya coasts that's like when i started playing in uh started replaying again in cons and i opened a, a boatload of cons from you know when I, when I was actually playing a lot and winning packs and just buying random boxes or packs and i think i opened like probably like 15 bloodstained myers Mm-hmm. And I sold I sold every one of them away, or I traded every one of them away to just to keep my playset. And boy, I wish I had not done that because uh-huh. it was like nine bucks, dude. Story of my life. I remember because I was getting back into Magic around cons as well, and every time I'd open one of those fetches, I'd be so disappointed. And now I just realize they're worth their weight in a precious metal. Yeah, I mean, you would have to wait like you know, it took like five years for them to like really appreciate or so like four or five years. And that's a long time to like sit on a spec. So, I mean, you know, got to think about it that way, but anyway, they were 20 or $25 pretty quick. And then after that, now they're like 50, which is wild, but yeah, I mean, it's one of the things where it's like, they'll get reprinted. They'll get reprinted. They'll get reprinted. No, they'll, they won't get reprinted. Not in this era of magic. Then one day they will. They'll be in modern horizons three. They'll be in Lord of the Rings set or something like that. Ooh, questionable. All right, with all that out of the way, let's jump into our NRG preview. We love the series. They're saving paper magic in the Midwest mostly. But spiritually, they're saving it for everyone everywhere. All right, so this weekend is Energy Minneapolis. And I am taking a look at the registration page right now. If you hear this on Thursday, uh, you will probably be able to register still. I'm looking at it on Monday right now. There are 78 players out of the 300-player cap enrolled in the Modern Tournament. I believe when I looked earlier at the Pioneer Tournament on Sunday, there was about 50 out of 300 enrolled. So if you want to get into this, you need to go check it out probably as soon as possible. If you're around Minneapolis, like I said, at the top of the show, go check it out. I think the first thing we could do as we start to look at the Energy Series again is take a quick look at the Season 2 leaderboard. 
just to have a glance at who's at the top of it, because there has been some changes since the last time we talked about it. So in first place of the season two leaderboard is Jesse Robkin. We had Jesse on a couple weeks ago. She had that massive weekend in the August trial weekend where she top aided both events, won one of the events, and put up 50 points in a single weekend. She has 75 points in the series right now. Connor Mullally is in second place, who also had a massive weekend that trial weekend with 44 points. He has 66 points right now, followed by Max Kamenowski, Zach Dubin, and Josh Warsaw rounding out the top five. A couple of different names right now. You know, you can control F for uh, my name. Oh, can we now? Yeah, I'm holding the fort down in 190th. Hey, you get there. Five points. A couple of good weekends. You're yeah, right just, back in there. Just, just like a couple of tournaments back in the game. Yeah. 190th with a bullet, as they used to say about Billboard magazine. It's a much darker expression than it used to be. It just used to mean you had a dot next to your name. But Oh. So one thing that's really interesting is that even though it's been a minute since energy has happened, a lot of these players have been out doing other tournaments. I saw, for example, on Twitter this weekend that Jesse and uh, Zoe and Connor Mullally and actually Mason Clark, who's not on this list, actually went to and split the finals of a team tournament in Lexington this weekend, a modern 10K team tournament, where um, Zoe ended up qualifying for the RCQ in Atlanta as a result of that. So the the first place team, or one of the finalist teams, was Jesse, Zoe, and Mason. And the second place team was Connor and, I believe, Bill Caminos and... Ben Weinberg. So the number one and number two people on the board put up another win in a different series or a different big tournament, not affiliated with energy, which I thought was pretty interesting. A good warm up for this weekend, perhaps. Perhaps. So though we didn't, we weren't able to find all the details on the Lexington tournament that was by a company called Card Monster, we did find a pretty cool tournament uh, from Europe, actually, so maybe a totally different metagame, but they were yeah. kind enough to share a whole lot of data with us over Twitter. And this is for the Legacy Series, European Legacy Series Grand Open Qualifier modern. We thought it would be fun to take a quick spin through their tournament. They had 497 players and just talk quickly about what we saw, what they had um, as far as trends go on the metagame. I mean, that's what makes it interesting, right? We've got 497 players. This is a it's a really big tournament. This is like, you know, small GP, uh, SEG tour type yeah. size, I'd say. Yeah. All right. So this tournament was in Paris. And while there's a bunch of data available on NTG Melee, which is nice, and they were nice enough to share their Day 2 metagame, I think that we might check in on the Day 2 metagame in a minute, but we're actually going to talk about the win-loss data that was shared by MTG Data on uh, Twitter, essentially. And so what we have here is there's a table on a tweet from them where they pulled their data from Melee, but I think they might have fixed it up. And this is... We're going to talk just about win rate versus the metagame right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, Shane, why don't you talk a little bit? We can go through their percentage. We're going to put do these in order of the meta share that each one had and then talk about the win rate sure. that they had. All right. So we have Is It Merktide with 72 decks or 14.4% of the meta. Win rate is... A little bit, little bit more tidy, 45.5%, so 225 and 269. I'm assuming they count draws as losses in uh, this type of data. That is brutal. 
It has it has a losing win rate against every popular deck besides tying here here tying Living End and Golgari Yogmoth, uh, Teamer Rhinos, which only had uh, seven decks in the field as the four and five color variants are creeping up to take its place. Um, it, it did have a good matchup there, which is something that I think Stan and I would agree upon is not a fun matchup for Teamer Rhinos. So yes, it, it had a very good matchup against Teamer Rhinos across four matchups. It had a very different spread against the four color Rhino deck. For sure. So uh, let's keep moving down the list, though. We've got Hammer Time in second place, which I would kind of expect uh, in second place right now, more or less. We've got 34 decks, about 7% of the meta, a 52.2% win rate. Do you guys want to get in the weeds on these or just kind of keep on reading and then we can talk about particularly interesting, maybe polarizing matchups? Uh, yeah, I think it's interesting to call out matchup. We don't have to go through every single matchup, but like sure. some of the ones that jump out to us, like their best spreads and maybe their worst spreads. I think there's yeah. value there. I mean, again, of course, as we're talking about smaller sample sizes, but still, you know, it's a lot of players playing a lot of matches. So it's at least good data points. Yeah. So hammer time, 52% win rate in general. It looked like it's best matchup. It's best matchups were against Boros burn four color rhinos and mono green Tron. Not surprising. Does the four-color Rhinos thing surprise you? I kind of feel when I've played Rhinos versus Hammer that I have so many options to stop what they're trying to do unless they're playing really well, they're relying on blacksmith skill at the right time, things like that, or you know, presenting just a, a really ridiculous clock that I, I couldn't come back from or something like that. But oftentimes I feel like I have the tools necessary to stop what they're doing. I think this is going to get a little deep on the difference between four color and teamer rhinos but uh long story short i think some of the changes that teamer is making to play leyline binding you make that hammer matchup worse and if you look at teamers like shaving rate, bone crusher or something like that like yeah, you still were doing yeah, bone crusher things shaving bone crusher shaving brazen borrower petty theft in particular i think is pretty uh, bad good point good point yes and, and i also don't think they're always running for force of vigor in the side yeah I, so I, if, I, if i was if i was shaving I mean, not to, of course, we're getting in the weeds on this one because we do like uh, rhinos. I feel like if I was shaving my brazen borrowers in the main, I would definitely have four force of figures to make it because for how popular uh, hammer time is right now. And maybe they're not shaving on force. This is conjecture, but like something's got to give, right? Yeah. Let's put a pin in, in uh, no, four color rhino for a minute because there's actually some big notes to get to that when we get to their to its line. It's the eighth most popular deck, but there's a lot to okay. talk about with it. I'll keep running down this. Yep. Living end, 5% of the meta, 52.5%. Uh, four color creativity. So again, th this is creativity is the fourth most popular deck. Yeah, at, this is the one that blew my mind a little bit when yes. I saw it on here. It was like, wow, okay, people really like this deck now. Yeah, I mean, fifty, a five percent of the meta just under living end, fifty, just in about the same win rate, fifty-two and a half percent for four color creativity. Yeah, and its best matchups, surprisingly, sixty percent against Murktide is really good, which surprised me because creativity is kind of all in on counter, like a counterable thing. You know what I mean? When in creativity, and I guess you have lots of ways to get around that, like spell pierce. You know, you have Teferi, but still kind of fascinating. I guess that leyline binding just owns. Murktide Regent, so that's something and I'm assuming most of these creativity decks are also running Leyline Binding. Uh, you know, 60% against Hammer Time is pretty interesting, and then the other samples are a bit smaller, but pretty interesting. 
they're smaller, but like some of these trends are super polarizing. Like it's 80% against Amulet Titan, but 25, so it's 80% favored against Titan, but it only had about a 25 win rate against a few Grixis opponents. To think that Grixis is doing that much better, I guess like that just speaks to the power of Thoughtseize against creativity, which is what Murktide is missing, right? Like Murktide can't only rely on the counter magic to disrupt this combo. Right. True. Worth mentioning, since you brought up Grixis, Grixis actually won this tournament. We're not going to talk about the the top eight or anything like that, but that was the winning deck. Okay, fifth place, Boros Burn, 18 decks, 3.6%, very burn kind of win rate with 46.5%. We won't go deeper than that, but somehow always in the top five, always below 50%. It's your boy, Boros Burn. Golgari Yogmoth. Actually, this is one of the lower overall composite win rates I think we've seen from Golgari in a while, where it was also hovering the low 50s at 52.6%, 3.4% in the meta. Pretty pretty fascinating to see. This is another one where there's some 100% matchups and some 50% matchups, and then some zeros, basically, for Yogmoth, which is fascinating. Amulet Titan is next. That is the seventh deck on the list. 55.5% win rate. A very, that's a good weekend for Amulet kind of win rate-esque. It's solid number, 55%. Also good against Murktide and Hammer Time. Amulet Titan turned in a 6-1 and one record against Hammer Time this, this weekend for an 85% win rate, which is pretty interesting. It also had an 85% win rate against Boros Burn. A little bit less surprising there. Um, okay, so now we are at the eighth most popular deck, which is your most popular deck, you two. Four-color Rhinos. Rhinos had a 60% win rate in this tournament, and it was yeah. that's the second best win rate uh, reported, including a 68% win rate against Murktide, a 67% wow. win rate against Boros Burn, 75% against Yogmoth, 75% against Shadow, four-color control was 67%, 83% against Rakdos Undying, aka Scam, uh, and then 65.5% win rate against the other field, which was about 40% yeah. of this meta. So all the not quote-unquote non-meta decks, four-color rhinos beats it 65% of the time. Yeah, that's wild. I really do want to dig into this data because it's a large sample size to see how many were your rhinos, how many were four-color, how many were five-color, what were the builds looking like? Because like we talked about the other week, these aren't really solidified. Yeah, I would assume, to be honest, these are all five-color. Now, I, I don't think anybody's holding on to that. I'm going to pay two for my leyline binding. You know, it's. I think it's a question whether it's your rhino or not, right? But I, I, I would be really surprised if some of these people were like, "I'm not running a swamp." Yeah, and and from this data, it looked like it really only had three bad matchups this tournament. They were Hammer Time, Living End, and Four Color Creativity. Unfortunately, three of the top decks, the second, third, and fourth deck in meta representation, were all bad matchups. Yeah. Yeah, but interestingly enough, like if you look at just the Teamer Rhino data, it's a total flip where those three, Hammer, Living End, <laughs> and Four Color Creativity, were really good matchups. And I think that's just weird. It's it's so bizarre. I think like there's a little bit of sample size obs- yeah. obfuscation happening here, but also just goes to show you how like a new piece of tech can improve a deck's position in the field, perhaps, and, and maybe make it a little more interactive against very um, troublesome permanents. But at the same time, like it can totally flip the narrative on what you might expect the matchup spread would be. And based on this data, like it almost looks like they're two different decks. Yeah. Yeah, weird. I mean, some, sometimes one mana instant speed removal can be good. 
and also sure sometimes can. it can be bad, apparently, <laughs> yeah. if you believe these numbers. All right, next up was Azorius Control with 14 decks. It was 49%. I don't have much to say about Control. Does anyone here have anything no. to say about Blue, no, blue White? No, st- stop, play- stop playing it unless you're Waffle Tapa. Yep. Next or Cauf- up. Or Mr. Cauliflower. Grixis. <laughs> yeah. Next up, Grixis Shadow, as I mentioned, was the winning deck of this tournament. I did not look at the deck list from the winner. I doubt that there's anything particularly innovative going on other than, you know, that whole meme where a shadow player will show you that they took out one ledger shredder and added one extra dragon's rage channel and say it's a whole new deck. You know, I got a lot of love for this deck, but it turned into a really good weekend. 57.5% win rates, uh, a good amount of sample size. It was 2.8% of the meta and had positive matchups against Murktide, against Hammer Time, against Four Color Creativity. Really, really good. Not good against Living End, not good against Burn. Uh, in a very small sample size. But um, interesting to see that Grixis is turning in positive win rates against a lot of these decks that are at the top of the top of the meta here. Next up is four-color control, 51%. I don't have much to say about four-color control. What do you all think about your I mean, these I mean days? The sur- this is the surprise of the list for me because it's only 2.6% of the meta game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and and four-color control, when we talked about Leyline Binding the other week, I think... We've seen a lot of lists in the challenges and such in the in the prelims where four color control seemed like it got another injection of power in the powerful ley line binding, right? And so if if it's just adding to its flexible removal suite and mana efficiency, it's surprising to me that four color control one wouldn't be a hotter deck of the tournament and two would perform so averagely for uh, the archetype. Yeah, the, I think one of the interesting details here is that most of the decks that had more representation just did better than it and, and had very favorable matchups against four-color control. Living End and Creativity in particular like just dominated it. 40% win rate against either of those. Grixis Shadow even like seemed like a really problematic matchup, which I never knew that that was the case either. Yeah, I mean, we haven't really talked about this because we haven't been doing like a lot of breakdown type content, but I think the the rise of the creativity decks has been a big thorn in the side for four color control. We don't have a lot of one-on-one matchups in this particular tournament because of the fact that four color control is so lightly represented, but that is by all accounts a, a deck that four color Control and Omneth builds have have a really hard time dealing with, and that's one of the reasons for its popularity, I think. And I think we still haven't really seen the metagame pivot in ways that are really acknowledging the popularity and power of creativity. So I'm curious. I, I don't think a deck like Four Color Omnath is down for the count. I think that it's you know part of the larger cycle of modern, where if creativity has something kind of address it in a real way, then I think Four Color Control can likely find a window to, to open back up. Yeah, exactly. I, I do think we're just maybe finally found a tournament that is showing that we're mid-cycle of four color maybe being a little bit less popular it'll be very interesting to see what happens in minneapolis this weekend since the last time we had a tournament four color was still one of the top top decks in the meta representation for energy here in the states maybe that won't be the case this time especially if you look at this next deck on the list which is oh, and a weird one and we've been talking about this a lot, threatening to play this deck the last couple of weeks. Rakdos Undying or Rakdos Scam, 13 decks, 2.6% of the meta, 
63.6% win rate versus the meta. Is, it, is this finally, finally becoming a thing people are actually respecting and, and playing to a good ability? I mean, it's certainly something I saw people complaining about in the Discord in detail today, just saying how difficult it is to beat a double striking 4-4 on turn one. So if you cheat in a Fury and bring it back, apparently it's hard to kill it. Who knew? Is, is Fury a 4-4 four, four, or is it a 3-3? Three, three? I'm not trying well, to correct you. I'm just it checking myself. A, it gets a plus one, plus one from the Undying trigger. Yes, so, that's even better. Yeah, I mean, this this deck, I think this deck is good. I think that it can have bad games because of the card inefficiency it can present. Mm-hmm. But there's it can do things that other decks just can't in terms of you know stripping your hand twice with a grief and presenting a grief on the battlefield the next turn you know with fury uh, getting that down as early as you know turn 1 or doing so also clearing a bunch of your small creatures so it's just good it has thoughtsies which i think is a a card that is coming back into vogue with you know decks like creativity or living end yeah i mean if you think about it what can kill a 5 cmc 44 on turn 1 you can't lightning bolt it. You can't fatal push it. You Leyline can't. Binding. You can't leyline binding on turn, not even on turn one. Two. No. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Dave, it's not until. You, are you saying we gotta sleep up our path to exiles again? That I mean, I'm just saying like there is. There's got to be somebody going. Oh my god, I have to be able to kill this with a single card. Is it? Yeah, path to exile is the only thing that comes to my mind as well for a single mana. If only there was blue elemental blast. <laughs> This format is not ready for Blue Elemental Blast. Come on, that would be that would be something. <laughs> Give it to me. I, th- I think we've earned it. Yeah, mental misstep would ke- would counter the Undying card at least. Let's uh, finish this up. Right? I think we could stop here. <laughs> These last two decks, Mono Green Tron and Teamer Rhinos. Uh, fascinating that Teamer Rhinos they decided to list as a separate deck here. I'm not saying that we have to put all the Rhinos decks together, but they are very similar plans they just have very different interactive suites right interactive suites and um if you were to group these all together it would be 23 decks hypothetically speaking and that would have made rhinos the fifth most popular archetype quote unquote um in the tournament as opposed to being split between eighth and 15th or whatever this is 14th so cool to take a look at this tournament now after all this contact setting (laughs) <laughs> Let's talk about Minneapolis. All right. Yes. We talked about the people that we think are going, the people that are in the hunt right now. What are you looking for? What are you curious about? What are your questions about modern going into one of the bigger tournaments we've had stateside in a while? So the biggest question for me about a you know US-based paper tournament is how much do people like the decks that they know? How many how often are people going to bring decks they feel they have enough reps with, that they feel have enough power in a vacuum that are generally good piles of cards? We've seen this ever ever since, you know, the Jund and Obzon days of of modern to the Merktide and Four Color uh, Omnath style decks of today. And I think people just really trust those decks and their play skill to give them an edge. But at some point, you have to listen to people like, I think it was Mike Sigrist who said something like, you know, you just have to, the biggest edge you get is the playing the best deck. And I think he was talking about that during like the hollow one days, right? Where sometimes you just need to pick the best deck and that's going to give you your three to 4% more than your play skill even will. So that's not what he said. That that wasn't the quote. The quote was, I don't know. The best way to get an edge in a tournament is to have a deck advantage over your opponents. I mean, I think that's the same thing. 
I, I think that's up to interpretation. I think that's up to interpretation. What a deck of, like a deck advantage could be like unlocking a crazy combo that no one knows about and or, just surprising all of your opponents. Or knowing what everybody else is going to be on and picking the deck that beats them. Or knowing what everybody's going to be on, knowing what deck people are going to play as a result of knowing what everybody's going to be being on and pick the deck that beats beats them. So I think but, deck selection is what he's talking yes. about. He's not talking but, about qualitative I, I, but I have heard people of Seagrass caliber also just say, oftentimes people overthink their deck selection and they should just be looking at what is the most winningest deck, what has the biggest raw power value. And like you guys said, that does have, that's contextual. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Like what's, what's mm-hmm. the most powerful is it's also contextual based on what's happening in the rest of the meta. Yeah, and true, that matters a lot in a tournament like this where we have an incentive for people to show up to these over for good players to come over and over again to the same series, right? So uh, we, I'm a little less interested in, and it makes me wonder if when we look at this, we should try to find a way to look at the leaderboard meta. That might be an interesting thing to say, like, here's what the overall meta was versus what the people who are the top 25 in the leaderboard brought, because those are the people who I think might do what you're talking about, Shane. There are so many casual, casual spikes, local heroes, LGS and bosses who come to these, this type of tournament. And those people aren't necessarily going to change based, although, you know, I mean, people change decks more now than they did a while ago, I think 10 years ago or whatever. Yeah, I, sure. I, the real the reason I brought that up, the reason I asked that question, is because I think that if if you are someone, I, I'm of the opinion that I think paper changes pretty slowly, especially in the states, especially at tournaments like these. So I think that if you wanted to, you could try to do what we were just talking about, whether it's the rawest power in the in the vacuum that we that you could try to consider, or say, hey, what's going to be the metagame that I expect and do i think that a deck has enough power whether it's something like four color rhinos whether it's something like rakdos scam whether it's something like mono green tron for pete's sake then maybe those are good options in the existing paper metagame of the u.s yeah it's a, re- it's a real burn meta up in minneapolis yeah so they say minneapolis is pretty wired last night here's my big question are we gonna see scam do something in a paper tournament now finally after having a good run on challenges last week, after showing up big with a win rate here at this particular tournament, is that going to start to gain steam as something that people are interested in here? Because it's a deck that's been bubbling right under surface. And secondarily, where's Jeskai Breach? Like nobody in this tournament was trying it. There's a lot of players who have been doing well with it, including Jesse, including Ross Miriam, you know, people who people follow on Twitter are some of those kind of B-tier decks that people have shown to be powerful going to make an impression on this tournament or not will be what I'm curious about. Those two specifically. I feel like Breach is the new KCI when it's not actually as challenging to play as KCI. And I say that not really having played either of those decks, but I, I think that people well, don't let are that just stop kind you of, from having an opinion. I mean, well, I mean more, <laughs> I mostly see it as I see the same patterns happening where yeah. it's like this deck is clearly extremely powerful. Uh, and people are just kind of like, I don't really know what to do with breach and I don't in, in grinding station. And I'm kind of afraid to play it versus playing. Is it Murktide, even though it's a very similar deck. And at some point more people are going to be like, Oh, I get it. People yeah. are writing enough guides. I've got I've got the Lee McLeods of the world writing my grinding station uh, deck guide, and I feel comfortable enough to really get the reps in. And then, oh yeah, this deck's really great. Stan, what's yours? 
Yeah, here's here's mine. I think four color is both going to be more popular and more successful. I think the people who go to the energy circuit have a lot of faith in this deck in particular, and I can see it just like having a bigger share of the room than at least this one particular European event did. I also think is it Merktide's probably going to have a slightly better win rate than 45%. I think that's pretty surprising and and like a big drop for a deck that's been like one of the top strategies in the format for a year. See, I mean, I'm I'm fine disagreeing with that. And it's not really a disagreement. It's just like, I think what we're looking at is a very normal, modern tournament where it's like 45 to 55% for most of the decks. And then we have a few outliers who overperform or the metagame was kind to them and stuff like that. I, I will, though, agree with you guys on on two things, and that's creativity and scam are like the decks to watch out for. I ah. feel like they're they're. I mean, creativity has proven itself countless times now, and I think it's getting ever more popular, especially in the hands of really good players. And scam, I think, is starting to like earn that trust as well. So you know, whether it wins the tournament, I think is not necessarily indicative of its power level, but yeah. I, I yeah, can see not this, looking for a win. This, Just curious if it'll be if it'll start appearing at the top t- tables like, here. Like it won't be in others. It won't be in the other category. It'll yeah, have its exactly. own three three percent meta share and like a fifty five percent win rate or something. Top sixteen finish doesn't you know not an other exactly. You know I love a blood crypt, so I'm here for I'm here for that for sure. Yeah, I you know the last thing I'll say is like just looking at all of this uh, Paris data, like how many of these top decks play Blood Moon and. Compare that against how many of these top decks would like hate to see a Blood Moon. You just want to play Blood Moon, and so do I, Stan. I'm just, where, where are the Blood Moon decks? Why aren't they cleaning up? Like, they, I mean, it's paper, good against paper, creativity. Paper moves slow. Paper moves slow. You know, I think that Blood I Moon's an old we'll... card, dude. It's it, it printed <laughs> in the dark. <laughs> it was. I can confirm. I, I will say, I still think people are afraid of Boseju, and so the decks that just play it for value aren't as powerful not for value, the decks that play it as like a long-term disruption piece instead of a tempo disruption piece are are less successful, right? So I think Rhinos can get away with it because they just need one turn to be mm-hmm. able to mess somebody's stuff up. If you're looking at Murktide, like you need a little bit more time. And so they're not, you know, they're not trying to do it as much or Ponza or something like that. Like they're trying to hold that advantage for a long time. And I think that plan with Blood Moon doesn't work anymore as well as it I used mean, to. I mean, you know what deck, does play Blood Moon, right? And it's Racto Scam. Yes. yes. Yeah. Good point. You know, another deck plays Blood Moon. One of the decks we're going to talk about in the dive down today, I'll let you figure out which one it is, since we are talking about three tribal decks, Elves, Merfolk, and Goblins. Stay with us. So one of the nice things about working with Barrister and Man is now I get email correspondence from Will. He says, Dear Stan, I have news. And I come to share that news with you, my co-hosts, and you, our listeners. Did you know that Barrister and Man puts their scent and product release schedule in a blog on their website? We did. We mentioned it last week that people should go check it out. What I didn't know is that they sent out informative emails that would also give you parts of that schedule or promote it to people so they could easily find the link. Yes, it's it's out there. It's on their blog. And one of the things that jumped out to me is that they're doing pre-orders for a selection of a, a little family of scents known as the Four Horsemen. Section. With the Four Horsemen ride, oh. choose your fate and die. That's a good yeah. one. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
there's another incredible song called The Four Horsemen by Aphrodite's Child. If you want to hear like a lost 70s track sometime, the guy who wrote the Chariots of Fire theme is in was in this Greek prog rock band called Aphrodite's Child, and they, re- they released this track called The Four Horsemen. It is unbelievable. If you told me there was a band named Aphrodite's Child, I was just assume that it was a Greek prog rock. <laughs> well, it was. Anywho, so if you want to get ready for, for Halloween with some spooky scents, pre-orders for the Four Horsemen start on October 4th. It officially comes out on October 18th, but I want to talk about the four scents that they've got here, named after the titular horse people, war, famine, plague, and death. Pretty. I can't wait to slap some death on my face, you know what I'm saying? De- death sounds Pretty really hardcore. Good. Yeah, so death, citrus, resins, and moss. I'm curious about plague personally, the lavender herbs, citrus resins and moss. So, so, resins, so they, they all have citrus resins and moss with like different other things. Right. Yeah. So war's got hot metal and gunpowder. That sounds okay. like a scent. Sounds hot. Femin, dust and hunger. Interesting. And I don't think these are joke names because like I said, plague is lavender and herbs. Has has Will ever done anything as like an actual joke? I feel like Will is very serious about this game. But the branding has always has a sense of humor. We'll give them that. All four of these offerings are going to come out as shaving soaps. They'll have aftershave splashes, aftershave balms. And then there's going to be limited quantities of refills available for these. So get them while they're available. Get ready for Halloween with your fragrance game. So if you want to get 15% off uh, your first order at Barrister and Man, use code THEDIVEDOWN15. And that lets Will know that you came through us, and we appreciate it. All right, so as Dave mentioned, the real meat of this episode, I mean, I guess we did cover the NRG preview for about 40 minutes, but the other meat of this episode is us going over decks that feature Dominarian and its newest lords in the form of a goblin, a merfolk, and an elf, just like the three horsemen that we mentioned in the ad break. Uh, these, these are three lord horsemen of the apocalypse that are hopefully revitalizing tribal decks in modern. So and maybe each, pioneer. And yeah, maybe a little pioneer. Maybe pioneer. So what we did is we, uh, we picked our poison. We found some deck lists, and we played some decks, as we are wont to do, in a Sleeve, Leave, Heave segment. And Stanislav, I believe you're up first with, uh, I mean, hold on, what, what deck did you play? Who can guess which lord I picked? Dave, you go first. I'm pretty sure you picked the horse lord. Uh-huh. Yeah. Shane, the, Shane, what's your guess? What's the, what's the cat lord? Uh, Kagura? The elemental lord? Yeah, Kagura. Yep. No, you're both wrong. I picked the Elf Lord. No kidding. Crowned Visionary. GG for a 1-1 Elf Druid. Other Elves get plus one, plus one. And whenever you cast an Elf spell, you may pay G. And if you do, draw a card. Seems good. Was it Seems GG's? Like good Lord. It, was, it was GG's in some matches. And MTGO Salt in others. Okay. So where, what's the what's the story with this card? It clearly refers to other cool elf things. Yes, what's going there, on here? Th- there's a lot going on here. So I want to preface that the addition of Leaf Crown Visionary is introducing just the second two mana elf lord to modern and pioneer. This isn't like Merfolk where you have more lords than you can play. Like 
we're actually kind of limited in our selection of playables, um, you know, at, especially at two mana in this in, in these decks. And one of the interesting things about Elf Lords in particular is that they all have some kind of unique upside beyond just the buffing effect. In modern, Archdruid and Elvish Champion can either generate tons of mana or even provide potential evasion, respectively. In Pioneer, the other two mana lord, Elvish Clan Caller, features an ability somewhat similar to Visionary, but plays way, way differently, that can fetch up more lords. He, there it costs six mana. Visionary is unique because it's, in my opinion, designed somewhat to offset one of the common pitfalls that aggro, tribal, and creature decks frequently have because it turns all of your creatures into cantrips. So in a lot of games against aggro decks, you might find with or against them that eventually they just run out of cards. But with Leaf Crown Visionary, if things are going as planned, that doesn't really happen. And, and you never actually run out of gas because every time you cast a threat, hopefully you're drawing into another one. One of the things that I noticed while playing with this Visionary is that in a deck whose best draws enable three mana plays on turn two, because your opening hand almost always wants to have an Elvish Mystic or a Llanowar Elves, Visionary at two mana can both support some of these big three mana plays, but it can also just be a really powerful top deck. And perhaps that's true of many lords, but it's not true of every other two mana card that Elves had available to it previously. In this case, I found that it was better than Clan Caller, but it didn't actually feel better than Elvish Archdruid. Because unlike the two-mana Lord, this one is a lot cheaper to use. Clan Caller costs six mana to provide extra power and extra card on the board. This one really only expects you to have one mana up to start basically impacting the board or, or your hand in, in a meaningful way. On the other hand, Archdruid, though it's three mana, the big mana generation that it produces is just a lot more flexible. And it can be used to both provide more power, generate more cards, or eventually just set you up for a winning play in a way that just like a two-mana lord in and of itself with no other abilities can. So did you... I sort of envision this card. When I see this card, I think you envision kind of like going off, where it's just like, I'm casting an elf, I'm somehow using this elf to generate more mana, perhaps, and I'm drawing cards, I'm doing it again, I'm playing cards from my hand to get past that land I top deck, and I'm just like casting five elves in a turn or something like that. Like it's doing something vaguely goblin-esque where you just kind of go from a minor board state to something fairly outrageous. But is that really not as happening as often as one might hope? Well, that's really astute that that's what this card is really enabling. And to some extent, Elvish Archdruid actually helps make a card like this better because Archdruid produces the mana that you need in order to effectively go off. So if anyone's ever played with or is vaguely aware of how legacy elves work, they have a card that is banned in modern called Glimpse of Nature, single green sorcery. Whenever you cast a creature spell this turn, draw a card. Seems pretty good, right? I think so too. Yeah. So in legacy, if you cast that with a Gaia's Cradle that can produce a ton of mana, you are effectively going off because every time you cast a spell, you don't actually have to pay an extra uh, tax or mana the way Visionary does here. But it lets you keep your hand full while building a board state. And though your elves never typically don't have haste, in this case, you are effectively setting up a really big turn where it's just like you expend a ton of resources, draw more cards than you are supposed to in an otherwise aggro deck, 
And then eventually you have this crazy board state where you threaten a, a pump with an Azuri or a pump with a um, Elvish war leader, or better yet, you produce a lot of elves and then you have at least one black mana up um, to cast a shaman of the pack and just like burn your opponent out of the game too. One of the differences here from the the legacy elves decks is like this doesn't have like an I win combo on the spot with the exception of shaman of the pack and shaman of the pack doesn't usually seal the deal on its own. It requires at least one attack to like get you halfway there. You know that legacy version has uh, protogenitus or you can natural order for a crater of behemoth. This isn't really doing that. This is just like getting more bodies on the board faster because it lets you draw them faster. Yeah. But it does set up like these positions where you kind of have your opponents at check in a way that like clan caller just cannot. And Elvish Archdruid also like sort of cannot by itself, even though, you know, potentially a better card. I, I guess the one thing I would love, love to know a little bit as you're getting into this is kind of like how often are you, what percent of the time do you think you're actually paying for the trigger to draw a card? Is it all the time? Is it some of the time? Is that coming later and I'm skipping forward in your discussion or? No, no. Um, it's, it's some of the time for me, um, assuming I wasn't making any mistakes because every once in a while you get into this position where it's like, I've got two mana and I can either play very impactful two mana card or I can play like a mana dork and draw a card. Yeah. And you kind of have to decide which one is probably going to get you deeper into the game given the board state or your opponent. Right. Yeah. Like in some cases I'd rather play the the Warmaster and not draw a card because if the Warmaster is left unchecked against, you know, a, a non-interactive deck, eventually that's going to create like the massive board state that I need to run over right. my opponent or or burn them out with the shaman of the pack. Totally. If you it, had to put a percentage on it, would you have a guess of how often you're skipping? In it's different per format. Right. Okay. So in Pioneer, I'm skipping a little bit more frequently because you have less access to big mana. Right. In modern, where it's way more interactive, and I'm like trying to like get as many cards as possible. I'm basically trying to position myself where I'm like drawing as many cards as possible. Yeah. Um, just to stay in the game. That makes sense. Yeah. Another creature I want to briefly mention and compare is Beast Whisperer, which is 2GG for an elf, 2-3, whenever you cast a creature spell, draw a card. So that one doesn't have a tax, but it does cost 4 mana. Never really saw Constructed play in any, like, consistent elf decks. Yeah. For two big reasons. A, 4 mana is a lot. Like, best case scenario, you're playing it on turn 3, but then you're tapping out for it on turn 3. And in general, like... You want your turn three to kind of set up a, a turn four, turn five win. Uh, but the other big problem is that you can't get it off of Coco. And it's it's also like somewhat hard to get it off of a Court of Calling. Mm-hmm. And, you know, elves being a Coco deck, you just want as many good hits as possible. And whiffing on a four drop, like, feels really bad. Because that's a good card that you have to put on the bottom of your deck effectively. So, you know... Visionary essentially forces you to pay like attacks up front, then waiting a bit longer to cast a powerful spell. That's ultimately setting you up for winning line. They have similar roles. They're keeping your hand full, but Beast Caller, or I'm sorry, Beast Whisper just takes longer. All right, so uh, let's talk about my testing really quick, or probably this will be the bulk of this conversation. (laughs) Really quick, three leagues. Yeah, really (laughs) quick, slowly. I played three leagues. I did one in Modern and two in Pioneer. And the reason I played only one Modern League is because 
this deck just hasn't been as successful in modern, but I saw enough lists pop up in paper and online that I was curious to see how this plus Archdruid and some of the other really good cards in modern would fare, especially the cards in modern that produce a ton of mana, like Heritage Druid, for instance. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, this was not the solution that modern elves needed. Boo. And just cutting to the chase, I'll explain why. This version of the deck still a heave, I think. Like, just playing aggro elf creatures that have some lords, have some mana, and, you know, try to eventually go big and shaman on the pack, like, isn't really a winning strategy in the format, or at least the matchups that I played. What do you think the solution that modern elves does need? Like, is there anything? Like, wh- Guy's cradle. Well, okay, sure. Cradle or um, a glimpse of nature would be nice, yes. I think the the problem and the solution is that elves are not disruptive. Yeah. Unlike spirits or humans, which can like kind of impact the board in meaningful ways or, or create these tempo situations. Elves is very much, here's all of my creatures. They're really big. Can you deal with really big creatures? Yes or no. And if you can, I don't really have much else that I can do. Mm-hmm. You know, humans, spirits, goblins, they're like picking off your opponent's creatures. They're interacting with the stack sometimes. They're synergizing off one another in ways beyond just pump, 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 pump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So though elves can go wider, you know, wide decks aren't necessarily the best thing to do in this format. Like, sometimes you just need a couple of really good creatures and that's it. Actually, probably what you could really use in modern is um, natural order. Yes. Right. Yeah, like if it was go get answer. Thank if you. it was go get um what crater hoof or crater hoof, then yeah. you're doing it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe wirewood symbiote helps because that gives your creatures like a unique form of evasion that helps solve one of the problems that you often face. But you're not proactively interactive, you're reactively interactive there. And that's something that elves doesn't actually have either, unless you like get lucky off a of cocoa in, in, in a way yeah. and, like a, a pump saves your creatures. Yeah. And so what we're saying with all this is that it's a ways off. We think it's a ways off. Yeah. There's no, there's no way they're going to print natural order into modern. Like these are really powerful cards. So, yeah. So people used to complain about plague engineer killing creature decks, but I just think that's old news. Like even looking at results, like who's playing plague engineer these days? Not many people. It's true. I'm struggling with just Ren and Six doing one damage to like even a Leaf Crown Visionary or anything else. Most of my creatures come down with only one toughness. Fury deals with everything else. Unholy Heat is is devastating. Solitude is is a really big deal too. One of my matches was against the Mono Black Coffers deck, and they just had like Plain Jane Black Removal that destroys target creatures. Doesn't care how big they are, and that seemed like a problem as well. Not to mention that they had backup damnations. Yeah. Brutal. So, heave the modern version. We ain't there yet. Pioneer? A little bit more interesting, and I fared a little better. Played two leagues, and I had a very middling 5-5, and I switched my build a little bit for the second league, and I actually did a bit better there, too. So, I have spoken to this to some effect in the past. I think Pioneer is a very polarizing format, and L's actually fit very neatly into what seemed like pretty polarizing matchups, where I was either just miles ahead of my opponent or unbearably behind. So on the on the plus side, Visionary offers this brand new way to unleash an insurmountable board state just because the caps with the threats keep coming. You know, like if I'm keeping mana up or if I'm generating a ton of mana with Nykthos or 
um, Circle of Dreams Druid, which is a bad card, but you kind of have to play it because you produce enough bodies and it's an elf. It felt like almost no one that didn't have board wipes can can get past that. But on the other hand, speaking of board wipes, like Supreme Verdict, huge problem. And Blue White Control is pretty popular in leagues for me. Mayhem Devil, also a really big problem. Especially if they're able to just like control my my board early, pick off enough lords that I'm not really playing anything bigger than a 1-1 or most a 2-2 that a Mayhem Devil can usually just deal with um, with a couple cat oven triggers. Even Goblin Chain Whirler um, out of a mono red deck, just that plus play with fire, lightning strike, other cheap red interaction was was super problematic. But this is just a, sub, a subset of the format. And when I was able to dodge those matchups, I actually felt like I was putting up a really good fight. You know, on the other hand, I did really well against the Lotus Field combo deck and Grease Fang combo just because my threats and pseudo combo plan was bigger and faster than theirs. Even Rakdos mid, their point removal wasn't necessarily faster than the amount of threats I had because though it's an interactive deck, they also are playing a ton of threats. And when it's just like body versus body, mine were usually bigger. And I was able to actually best Rakdos mid in one match because they just couldn't answer my creatures fast enough. And I was drawing enough cards that uh, I was able to outpace their interaction and, and um, out-tempo them ultimately. Yeah, main deck configuration with Liliana of the Veil, like that's not great against you. you know? Totally. Yeah, and if like it's game one and they go, turn, if I'm on the play, play a dork and then they turn one Thoughtseize, like that actually puts them really far behind. Right. If I can like top deck a Coco and then cast it on three or four, especially. Long story short, I basically struggled against any deck that could kill multiple creatures with one card, but decks that didn't really have like access to that, those types of two for ones or wrath effects didn't feel like as big of a problem. And, and, and for that reason, like in pioneer green, black elves felt a little bit more believable. I don't see it winning a challenge soon. Like I'm not, I'm not sleeving it up, um, nor would I necessarily recommend it for Atlanta unless Brothers War introduces like some crazy elves and natural order to seal the deal. But we all know how big elves were in Brothers War. We know. I mean, it does take place on Dominaria. There may be some elves in ancient the trees. elves, ancient elves in the trees, like that planeswalker. I can't remember her name, but she's alluded to often. Frailies. That's the one. Yeah, maybe we'll get a new Frailies card. Actually, you probably will, for what it's worth. But we'll see. That'll be great. The last thing I will say, the one exception where like this basic heuristic doesn't work, and that was in a matchup against Mono Green, where I was able to outclass all their threats, and they didn't really have any ways to two-for-one me. And in some cases, I was able to get them to like less than five life, but because Mono Green is an absurd deck, they would just be totally on the back foot, and they top deck like the Karn or the thing they need to combo off, and then just like combo out from behind. Um, so, you know, at the, at the risk of being on my classic anti-pioneer soapbox, I just feel like mono green having access to a combo kill is a little unreasonable and I'd love something to be done about that. But even though my record with elves a little middling, I just think that's kind of par for the course with most pioneer decks, unless you're playing like the top three strategies in the format. And so that's why elves is, a, is believable for me. I think you can do pretty well with it in LGS and I bet we're going to keep seeing it at least periodically appear in in 5-0 results from time to time. And and maybe like someone could get really lucky in a prelim and go 3-1 or even 4-0 there too. Cool. There you go. Sorry, it wasn't better for you. I know you're an Elfman through and through, but you know, I think it's also good that 
you know, we got to be realistic here. Yeah, and it's nice to have a new two mana lord for my Lathril Elves EDH deck because you can't play Clan Caller there since its activated ability sucks. <laughs> so now I can now I now I can just play Visionary there and with my proxied Gaze Cradle, everyone's happy. Yeah, Watsy, don't cancel me for proxying a card. Don't proxy that Moxie. Would you download? Would you download a guy's <laughs> cradle. I did. Yes. Um, Get okay, that growing so, rights of Illamok as well, or no? Oh yeah, but that one I didn't have to proxy. That one I actually just opened in a booster pack five years ago. That's like a twenty-five dollar card now. I know. It's wild. It feels good. So that was my experience with elves, Shane. You generously took the Merfolk job this yeah. week. Shane's favorite tribe. Everybody knows it. My favorite tribe, my favorite color in Magic. 2022 has been the year of Shane becoming a blue mage. Yeah. How did how did the blue tribe fare for you? Yeah, I mean, I played I played Merfolk or Merfolks. I've also seen is that like some weird plural thing? Like some people call it Merfolks. Almost like I've seen people call like removal removals, which is you know, but anyway. Um I'll just, I'm just gonna call it fish or like fish fishes. Um, weird fishes, I think. Weird fishes down on the farm. So Merfolk is a deck that, of course, you know we we've talked about this in episode one fourteen, which is somehow almost two years ago at this point. It's been around since basically the format's beginnings of twenty eleven. I mean, Lord of Atlantis was in flipping alpha for Pete's sake, and so I think that's even where the term Lord comes from. It is, and so the deck that I chose to actually use as my my platform for playing was at the MTG Southeast Asia Championships in Singapore. It went uh, five and three there in the hands of Winston Neo, and that tournament had about 130 players or so. Since we covered the deck, like I said, almost two years ago, there have been some cool additions to the Fish family that clearly were intended to give Merfolk fans some needed options, some needed power. The latest addition to the deck from Dominaria United is the new lord on campus, which is Voldalian Hexcatcher, which is one in a blue for a merfolk wizard. It has flash, it is a 1-1, and it gives other merfolk you control plus one plus one. And it has the text, sacrifice a merfolk, counter target non-creature spell unless its opponent pays one generic mana. So Hexcatcher, of course, adds another two-mana lord to Merfolk. It can be cast with Flash. It additionally doesn't need you to have double blue, like your other two-mana lords in Lord of Atlantis and Master of the Pearl Trident. And then additionally, of course, it allows you to potentially disrupt your opponent's game plan by rudely sacrificing its fish friends or even itself, of course. And might as well talk about some of the other new Merfolk here that were added in Horizons 2. We've got Svalin of Sea and Sky. It's one blue-blue for a legendary Merfolk god. She's a 3-4. She has Indestructible, as long as you control at least two other Merfolk. Whenever she attacks, draw a card. And other Merfolk you control have Ward 1, which, um, of course, just means if they're a target of a spell or ability, it gets countered unless they pay one additional mana. Svelin is a strong 3 and a play, of course, in that she has a, a strong 3-4 power and toughness that's potentially indestructible later in the game. Uh, she provides card advantage just by attacking, and then, of course, adding Ward 1 is, is awesome as it, as it can tax removal spells, which is something that you don't want to see when you're playing a tribal deck. And then we have Tide Shaper, which is single blue mana for a merf- Merfolk Wizard 1-1. It has Kicker 1, 
which then if it ETBs, if it's kicked, target land becomes an island for as long as Tide Shaper remains on the battlefield, and it gets plus one, plus one, as long as an opponent controls an island. So this gives you an option at uh, your one mana play that you sometimes or frequently want to be casting for two mana with a kicker. It can disrupt your opponent's mana. It gets Tide Shaper up to a 2-2. Two, two, gives your creature his island walk if you have one of your island walk lords out. You're never casting this card for one, right? Uh, I mean, we'll get into... The, the hiccups of various components of this deck later, I think yeah, I think you very much would love to be casting it um, for two mana, but you, you do have so many options of the two mana slot in this deck. I mean, there's literally one, two, three, four, five. There are 20 cards at two mana in this deck. So t- if you're playing Tide Shaper at two, it gives you 24 at two and zero at the one drop slot besides Aether Vial in this particular build. And again, we'll talk about this construction aspect uh, later on a little bit more. But yeah, you really do, you prefer to cast it with the kicker as much as possible because uh, an island on the opponent's battlefield can both disrupt their mana, but also help you out with the very important island walk text on a couple of your lords. And then the subtlety, of course, from Horizons 2 also shows up in varying numbers in the main and sideboard to do subtlety things. That's not even a merfolk. Weird, right? The rest of the deck is vaguely what it's been in the past. Like, you've got your eight two-mana Island Walk Lords, you got your Merfolk Tricksters, you've got your Silver, Silver Gill Adepts, you got your Glasspool Mimics, Force, Force of Negation, Aether Vial, all that kind of stuff. So we have all these newer additions to the deck, along with classics going all the way back to Alpha. Do these add up to something that feels powerful? And guess my answer. I yes. have a feeling what your answer is. Unequivocal, yes. <laughs> Love it. Uh, I don't know. Ten out of ten, Woodmer again. I don't know. I don't think I don't I don't know if this feels powerful, but I guess I, I should get into the weeds on on why I th- why 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 I may or may not think this is the case. Okay. Let's talk about strengths. I mean it's fun. Deck's fun. You get, to, you get to do a lot of things to keep your opponent on their toes. And if you want to be that kind of player, you really want to play a tempo weight deck, operate at instant speed a lot, represent a lot of things, that can be fun. Like if you know your options and you assume for some reason that your opponent who sees Merfolk once every five leagues or so uh, also has a deep knowledge of everything you could be playing, uh, then that makes you feel pretty smart, right? Where it's like, oh man, I, I get to Aether Vial in something that uh, makes their attack no longer good. I get to, you know, maybe they didn't think about my my Muta Vault, my creature land there that can that can untap and becomes a 4-4 four, 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 and they kind of just forgot about how Lords work for some reason or how Muta Vault works. There's a lot of things because this is not a super common deck. And if you're expert with it, which I am not, like you just sort of get a lot of play and that feels fun. Like you've got your force of negations, you've got your, you know, hex catcher, all that kind of stuff that can feel like you are bugging your opponent where, you know, if you're representing flashing in a hex catcher um, or representing aether violating in a hex catcher, then they have to think about how they're casting their non-creature spells into your battlefield of merfolk. If you're so lucky to find yourself in a position where you have that particular situation. 
I mean, the deck also does have access to a lot of disruption in your, you know, your force of negations, your hex catchers, your trickster, your settledies, your brazen bowers, and the main sideboard. You get your usual suspects like chalice and flusterstorm and counterspell and mystical dispute. Like whatever mix you might want to be annoying in a blue tempo deck, you're going to get in this, uh, and that can feel fun. And sometimes things go right. Like you get to play against a deck that lacks the interaction required to pick off your creatures. Your creatures end up having Island walk. You present a clock that can't be dealt with. Like the game I kind of liked the most and note, I lost the match here against creativity was they resolved creativity and put two archons on the battlefield. But I had enough of a board to kill them on the crackback because they had an Island in play because it's a multi, it's a multicolored creativity deck. Right. And, yes. and so I just, you know, just, I'm like, okay, you, you get my two weakest creatures that aren't pumping my other ones. I'm just going to swing back and GG's. How often did you find that the hex catcher's ability okay. was relevant? Yeah. This, this, do you want me to just jump into the weaknesses then, Stan? Do you want to go there or, do, or should we? Is fun? that a weakness? Uh, well, I mean, we, the he- hex catcher yes. is the headline of this, yes. this one. So let's, if, if hex, let's talk if, about if that. If hex catcher is anyway. a weakness, then that is not good, right? No, that's not good. So yeah, let's, let's focus on hex catcher just, you know, precisely here. Right. So, this deck is ostensibly coming is is ostensibly the entire reason Merfolk might be trying to make a comeback here. What might be better, while someone might focus on it and might play it in a sleep leave heave episode of their podcast, The Dive Down. So, ultimately, Hexcatcher is a card that doesn't make a lot of sense to me because unless you're facing down a combo esque deck like Living End or Rhinos or Creativity or like Scape Shift or something like that, right? Like sacrificing your creatures to have them act as like a non-creature spell only force spike is not what you want to be doing with your deck. Like you're if you're sacrificing your own creatures to do this, like what you're really doing is diluting your game plan of killing the opponent before that they just you know cast their next important spell, whether they you know cast another creativity or cascade into another living end or something like that. Like if you're saying like, hey, I'm going to sacrifice two of my creatures to make you pay two extra mana, sure that might might have bought you like a turn or two if they weren't actually dealing with your board. But really all that seems to do in my experience is just slow your clock down. So it's like this weird like anti-synergy where it's like, hey, I'm killing my things to tax you. And that just doesn't feel good. Like, like compare this with an effect like humans, right? Which is a deck that's also not anywhere really in modern right now. That has the ability to uh, strip the spell out of your opponent's hand in the first place. That has the ability to name the spell that you know your opponent wants to cast and make it so that they have to kill your meddling mage in order to do so in the first place. You, if you're playing like a pioneer or something like that, you can cast a flying Paulo to you know tax that spell more significantly without killing your own stuff. Like you have the ability with even a, a moderately okay tribal deck like humans to both proactively and like semi-reactively do the same thing that you're trying to do here without killing your creatures. And so you're able to kind of double dip where it's like, hey, the thing that humans is always doing is being a disruptive aggro deck. And what Merfolk ends up being here is like a reactive mopey creature deck 
and I'll get more into kind of like my my overall thoughts on why that's the case. But like, I feel like Hexcatcher as a one one is not great because like it's just super super vulnerable unless you have like a big board that's already doing things. And then at that point, Hexcatcher is sort of like gravy. Or it's like, okay, like my Hexcatcher is coming down as a 3-3 because I have two other lords. But at that point, if I have two other lords, I'm likely presenting like a pretty decent clock at that point anyway. So it's just sort of like, eh, I'm an extra decent lord or something like that. Like, compare this to Curse Catcher, which is a one drop that you can sacrifice it to force spike your opponent's uh, it's non-creature spells, correct? So like... It's not non-creature spells. It's instant spells. Or sorceries only. Oh, instant or okay, instant sorceries only. Which is only. close enough in, in a lot of what we're doing besides Planeswalkers most of the time or like super valuable artifacts. I mean, it's not quite as flexible, but you get my point. Like Curse Catcher is a one drop. And there's, I think, potentially something to be, to be said where it's like Curse Catcher might serve as pretty good Hex Catcher fodder while... Or potentially, I mean, I guess it wouldn't really make much sense unless you're countering like a planeswalker or something like that. But like it allows you to present somewhat of a clock where it's like, hey, my curse catcher is turn one if they're doing something early. That allows me to protect my mid to late game development. And I've seen curse catcher get shaved to like a zero of or a two of in some of these lists. And uh, I'm ultimately not sure that that's like kind of what you don't want a little bit more of. Because you're so clogged at the two drop slot right now, and so you're really reliant on Aether Vial, which has always been the weakness, I think, of a deck like Merfolk, which is like your games with Aether Vial and without are ridiculously polarizing. And to the point of like, what am I just mulliganing for an Aether Vial? And then I have two Merfolk in my no hand. No cards to play. Yeah, it's just yeah. it's just <laughs> absurd. And that gets to like another issue, which is like this deck has no card advantage. There's just like no real card advantage besides, of course, Silver, silver Gill Adept, which draws you a card. But nothing else says draw a card besides an attacking Savellan. And I mean, sometimes that happens where it's just like Savellan is not necessarily the nail in the coffin, but you know, attack a that's getting more attacks that become the nail and the co- the nails in the coffin, right? But at that point, it's it's not necessarily win more. It's just kind of like it's not as good as as other ways of drawing cards that some other decks have, and that presents an issue because these creatures are just not good on their own at any point in the curve, and it re- <laughs> this deck really relies on you maintaining a board state, and again, that's kind of like. The, the, the long and short of, I think, the weakness of this deck is that unlike even some other tribal decks, I think that the pieces here are very bad. Like, just very, very, very bad. And I think I'm going to repeat some of the, the issues that you had, Stan, with Elves, is that the way that I think Elves wins and creates advantage on the board is with creature advantage by drawing through the deck and creating a bunch of mana advantage that allows you to play a lot of cheap stuff. And with your Lord, you get to draw through your deck to take advantage of that. Yes. The, the Merfolk Lord here that I was you know talking about before, of course, Hexcatcher, doesn't really synergize with the deck in that fashion because, again, you don't create creature advantage in this deck. You just don't like you're just reliant on hopefully getting a little bit of card advantage with like your, um, you know, with the cards I mentioned earlier. And you try to get a little bit of mana advantage, 
with Aether Vial and your cards being reasonably costed and things like that. And so you try to develop your battlefield, which then allows your creatures to synergize and create an attacking force or a disruption force of some kind. I think one of the key differences that you're kind of circling around is that Merfolk plays like a tempo deck where it's not about playing a bunch of threats. It's about playing like a handful of threats that you back up with interaction. And then you eventually play a lore to help seal the deal faster than like maybe just a, a two one rack of could. Sure. Yeah. The issue I think is that the clock is just very slow. Like if, like, I mean, we look, we compare it to the only other tempo deck. I have any real amount of reps when if in, in the format, which is rhinos, you know, rhinos gets eight, Wait, eight power of trample. On. You like rhinos? I, I mean, I, I don't think we've talked about it too much recently, but yeah, I've been playing a little bit of rhinos. Um, we do you think it's a better deck than this deck? Oh, by far. Like, can you believe it? Interesting. Yeah. So, well, the, here's the reason: is that here's some more reasons. Is like it's just the the threats you're presenting with Merfolk are not very good and just not very fast, and your tempo is like solely reactive. Besides maybe like a bounce spell or two and maybe like a brazen bower or something like that. And so like your, your turn one options in like this particular build is like you get a mopey one, one tide shaper as like I said, the list are a shooing curse catcher and, mm-hmm. or an aether vial. And like, you definitely want to see an aether vial, but you can't really mulligan to it. And so it's just like, man, that sucks. Like I got a 40% chance of having the draw I want it still gives me a threat density that lets me take advantage of it. And the real issue with like not having a clock is like decks like creativity or living and make you present a clock to try to kill them before they can cast their namesake spells. And then you're forced to rely on like a force of negation or a sideboard counter spell or fluster storm or something like that. But then other decks like Merktide or Omnath builds or even burn can use their point removal to pick off your creatures and then just turn the corner so much harder than you can ever hope to. Or they can just like burn you out if they're burned or something like that, which is the best kind of corner turning. And so this is like my real issue here, right? Is like what you really want is to get Island Walk. Your creatures don't have trample. So like this one doesn't have, doesn't like spreading seas is like nowhere to be seen in these lists. And I'm just kind of like, why? Like, that's a source of card advantage and mana disruption in a world where people are playing five color decks all the time. Uh, well, well, it's because so of Tide, Tide Shaper, Shaper, though. Yeah, like Tide Shaper is the new seas. Yeah, but it also. But here's the problem. It co- yeah, it costs two doesn't draw a card. So like, I'm almost yes, it does. Huh. I had this argument with people when this card came out. It's a, it's a, it's a spreading seas that draw always draws a two two. That's what it is. And and it comes into play for free. Yeah, but then it can like, but, I, but then, it can, not, then, is, then you can kill it. That's the this real is what these too. people told. Yeah, but what what else are you? Draw? I mean, this is what I talked with people about with Merfolk when that card came out, and they were kind of like, "No, you got to think about it this way." I kind of believe them now. But here's you know, what happens. Here's what happens but, in, in, in practice: is that if you're relying on that as your ability to get your island walk, island. which is one of the huge yeah. ways of that this deck ever wins, is like then they just kill it. And then the island then the, goes and away. the island goes away. And sure, like yeah. you traded a card for a card, but right. then you don't. Well, have well you know what I think. You know what I think. There, if if they're killing your tide shaper, you turn the wrong land into an island. Ooh, well, they can also just float the about that. I had that happen more than once. It's just it was like, so, yeah, I'm going to float it. Bye, Shane. Yeah. Bottom line. Uh, bottom line. Thief? Fury still exists. 
Yeah. Yeah. yeah Fury still exists. This deck, this deck is not good. Um, if, okay. if you, if you like Merfolk, it's probably better than it's ever going to be in a long time. So have fun. But, um, in terms of like a competitive deck that I think is going to win a legitimate tournament, I don't think it's there. I think you can definitely go four Oh at your LGS and which is awesome, which is what we're about. And, and, but in terms of, am I ever going to sleeve this up or rent it? No, I went, okay. I, I went two, three in a league where I played weird decks and I played like three, a bunch, a handful of other matches and had some fun, but largely I don't think it's there. The end. Okay. Nice. Yep. But the chalk- Dave, Dave. chalky response. Dave, please tell us there's one sleevable deck in this episode. I mean, here's the thing. So I, had, I, I got goblins. I played goblins in modern. Okay. I don't know if I got the hard one on this one or if I got the easy one out of these three, because I think everybody knows about this deck, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody already knows this deck. Goblins is clearly the best deck out of these, these ones that we're talking about today. It got the most powerful card. I mean, if you look at just what Rundeveld Horde Master does, it's a 1-1. It's a 2-mana Lord. And in case you've forgotten, the text says, whenever Runeveld Horde Master or another goblin you control dies, exile the top card of your library. If it's a goblin creature card, you may cast that card until the end of your next turn. That card, when you guys talk about Fury being a thing, when you talk about um, not having access to card advantage in the decks when you'd really like to, for some reason, the I mean, I know why, I guess, but the elf has to pay mana to activate that ability, and on Runeveld Horde Master, it's free. You know, Stan, you mentioned that, that um, what's the name of the card that you did? It's vision, something visionary? Leaf-crowned visionary. Leaf-crowned, you mentioned that leaf-crowned visionary was a new two-mana elf lord. I would like to point out that this is the only two-mana goblin lord that has ever been printed that I could find. And I've been looking around on MTG Wiki and a couple other places to see a list of war- of lords. There is no other two-mana goblin lord. And that surprised me, really, honestly. I was like, oh my god, they've never made one, two. They're all three before. From what I can tell, all the other ones are three. So I think just on rate, this card is a lot better than the tools that Merfolk got or that elves got. Agree or disagree? Hundred percent. This is this is, sure. this is clearly the, the the pushed one. Yeah, and it's the the coolest one. It was already the best deck. So you know, for those of you that don't know or not super familiar with it, don't run any goblins. Goblins is a combo deck, right? Wait, no, goblins is an aggro deck. No, I think it's a prison deck. Uh, to control deck. <laughs> uh, there was a meme that was sent out by Goblin Lackey One on Twitter, who's a well known Legacy Goblins player, and it's. The galaxy brain meme and it's goblins is an aggro deck the tiny brain then it says goblins is a control deck goblins is every archetype and changes depending on the matchup aggro combo control prison and then galaxy brain is goblins is an aggro deck i think in in modern it's much closer to goblins as a combo deck being the first and last phases of this and then aggro is somewhere in between but the truth is this deck is a really resilient adaptable it is a very fun deck, I think, to play. Like, I think it's a real deck. So I don't think that there's going to be a lot of debate about whether this is a sleeve or not. The deck is a sleeve. It's a, It was a sleeve. It's a tier one point. F- I don't know how you want to slice your tiers, but it's a tier two deck. Like, let's if we're strict about the numbers, it's one of the t- it's one of the best tier two decks in modern. I think. Do you guys have any problem with that statement off the top? No, seems legit to me. I mean, it's the only tech on our list that's won a modern challenge recently, so... True. And so, if you don't know, 
it's a two card co- combo, right? Goblins are based on conspicuous Snoop and Bog- Bogart Harbinger. And how it works really quickly is you get Snoop into play when you don't have, uh, you get Snoop into play and have it not have summoning sickness. You play a Bogart Harbinger, you put Kiki GP on the top of your deck. The Snoop ability lets you be able to tap Snoop over and over again to make copies of Snoop constantly because it's a non-legendary creature. You make infinite copies of, not infinite, you know, 40, 60, whatever you want to say, copies of Snoop. And then in the last one, you copy your Bogart Harbinger. You put one of the cards in your deck that says sacrifice a goblin or sacrifice blank. It deals damage to target creature or player, so it's either Mog Fanatic or Sling Gang Lieutenant. Then you sack all the copies of Snoop that you made to kill your opponent. Easy peasy. It is a very easy core to build around because Snoop is good and provides card advantage in itself because it lets you play goblin cards from the top of your library if you want. It lets you gain the abilities of ones that are there if you need it for some reason. Harbinger lets you kind of search up pieces if you want to for value, although that's one of the worst cards in the deck, even though you need it for the combo to work. So you can do that. It's more effective to search with Goblin Matron. But there's just a huge suite of cards in, in Goblins to make this deck work. And Goblins are everything. There's between seven and eight quote-unquote tutors in this deck between between Goblin Matron and Bogart Harbinger. They're good because you're playing a combo deck. You know, you're looking for certain pieces. You're looking for silver bullets. A tutor in the elf deck probably wouldn't be that good. A tutor in the merfolk deck, the way that Shane described it, probably wouldn't be that good or useful in this deck because you have a two-card combo. You want to run the tutors cards. You have Mana Acceleration. You get to run Aether Vial and Skirk Prospector. Skirk Prospector is a little tougher to turn into Acceleration, but you can use it to do some stuff that you need to here and there. Uh, you know, you make you make tokens with something like Mog War Marshal and then Ramp or something like that, so there's ways to do it. You have Removal. You have an answer, a, you know, a really easy answer to turn one Ragavan and, and Mog Fanatic, basically. You have Munitions Expert. Let me tell you, there's nothing sweeter than playing Munitions Expert into a board where... God, what did someone play against me yesterday? So I was playing like a red-green ramp plus Ragavan deck. It was kind of a weird, weird kind of experimental build. And somebody attacked into me with a dashed Ragavan on turn two, where they had played a ramp, they had played a Bird of Paradise, and I had a Munitions Expert, and I played Munitions Expert and killed killed their, like, um, what's their, Ignoble Hierarch, and then blocked their Ragavan with Munition Expert. And I was like, this is sweet. <laughs> Not, I didn't even have to get really tricky to have this work. It's good. Sometimes two-for-ones can be good. Yeah, exactly. It has reach with Sling Gang Lieutenant and Kiki Jiki doing weird stuff can be like a weird kind of reach if you try to like value copy a token occasionally. You're not almost never going to do this. That's why there's not many Kiki Jikis in the deck, but it is kind of like something that you can get creative with. And then, of course, you have the Lord. You know, you have a two mana lord. Sometimes you run one goblin chieftain to be able to give your um, give your goblins haste if you want to, because that can come in handy sometimes. But the core of the deck is just really, really tight, you know, and it worked really well before. And honestly, the draw ability on Runeveld Horde Master is just a whole other level. Have you guys played against this deck yet or no? I still have not. No, but I've I've also I've only done one modern league in the last couple of weeks. So stop being so yeah. busy, Stanislav. Well, you've been busy, and you've been. And yeah, yeah. I think you were coming down off of like your four league a week preparation. 
he was doing multiple leagues a day. What are we talking about? So, I mean, I've, I've seen, I've watched players play with it and, you know, some better players than me play with it. And so I, I get the idea of what this deck is capable of and it's stupid. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's not like, I still think it's squarely kind of tier two plus, you know, it's the best of the second class of the metagame kind of like i said earlier i don't know if it has the potential to really bust up because in spite of the fact that rune vault horde master does a lot to help you recover from a fury a fury still can do significant damage to your team it's still you still have to spend mana to cast the cards that you draw off of horde master so recovering from kind of sweeper effects is tough even though it's a better position than any of these other decks had with it and you can do all kinds of stuff. You can just grind through your deck. You know, we talked last week about how we watched uh, Andrea Mangucci punt in the middle of the combo and then sacrifice all the tokens that conspicuous snoop tokens that he had made when he had a horde master out and a skirk prospector to be able to um, to be able to refill his hand and find a way to win on the turn before he died. Still, even though he punted in the middle of the combo, that was such a nice story you guys shared. We will find a way. Yeah, I loved it. We will find a way. We'll do it. I, and that was a great thing. And I think that's what's really cool about this deck, honestly, is that if you want to have fun and like try to, with a deck that's reasonably powerful, but has allows a lot of space for improvisation and like trying to figure out interesting lines, I do think that this deck is a good version for that. But here's what I have to say. Uh, you know, you, we had some stuff where we went into it deeply. I just want to share five things I learned on this go around with goblins, because oh, I, like I said, I think the rating is not really in view. Also, I don't want to get a lot of angry letters from goblin specialists by like trying to go deep onto what this is, all the ins and outs of the deck. There's a lot here. You know, when do I tutor? What do I tutor for? Sting Scourger is a card that was recently added to the deck that's cool in the way that it adds bounce to the deck the same way that a Brazen Borrower might or something like that. So there, there's a lot of different lines going on here. I think that's why this deck is just overtly better than decks like Elves and Merfolk. It's just you have play. You have options. You have tutors that let you think about options. You know, you have different ways to win with the deck than just sort of uh, beating down. And I think that's what makes this deck just more interesting and just better, like I said. Yeah. Well, it, it's really a key to it. So here, so here's five observations or things that I thought were cool about this deck. Uh, this time, I definitely, for what it's worth, I would I'm I would like to put this into my rotation of like fun decks to play. I think it is a powerful enough deck for anybody to consider playing, and I think there'll be meta games where it's good enough to be good. You know what I mean? So we'll see. Um, obviously, it dies to a lot of creature removal, but we'll talk about that in a minute. So number one, of course, is that if you're thinking about the headline card of this particular episode, Rubelt Horde Master. Just a reminder, drawing the cards costs you nothing. But the big thing is that you get access to the cards until the end of your next turn. So it's written in a way so that if they kill your goblins on their turn, you get a chance to cast the cards on your next turn before they go away. Here's why that's really important, though, is that if you, for some reason, want to do like a value Runevelt Horde Master sacrifice ability on your turn if you want to like main phase get rid of some goblins you have access to those cards for two whole turns you have access for that turn plus your next turn 
as well. And so if you get in a situation where you know you're not going to die, but you're digging for the answer and you want to try to refill, or you think you're in a bad position and you need to try to find an answer for an opponent's problem and you know you're not going to die on that interceding turn, that's actually way, way, way more powerful even because you can suddenly come back from your opponent's turn with a hand of six, seven, eight cards and be kind of like, okay, I have a ton of stuff to do now and you can just go for it. So it can really be like redrawing a new hand. Number two is what what Shane was alluding to earlier, which is it's not always about the combo plan. People have said this a bunch of different times about this deck. You know, is it an aggro deck? Is it a mid? You know, Spike when he was on a few weeks ago called this a mid range deck that had really kind of you're trying to two for one and then and then put together a combo from there. That's probably true too. I think that the main thing to point out is that you really pay attention to don't get tunnel vision on trying to execute your combo and miss out on the fact that maybe your opponent either A does damage to themselves that brings them down into lethal range from just dropping an extra lord, or B, your team kind of gets big enough suddenly where you can do 16 damage to them when they're not paying attention or you're not paying attention because you're all focused on the combo and disrupting the combo and things like that. It's not hard for this deck to do a lot of damage, especially if you play two lords in a turn. The lords are fragile, but there are plenty of decks where you might just outpace them. So sometimes when you're like, you know, you've got a reasonable size board and you're like, draw a goblin matron, and you're like, okay, I what am I going to do to, what am I going to search up with this to execute the combo, sometimes you might be better off just getting a Runeveld Hornbaster so your whole team gets bigger and then you can just crack in for, you know, to do a bunch of damage and go that way. So just keep an eye on that since life totals are so volatile in modern. Three is, I don't get why people tap out against this deck. It might be unfamiliarity. Mm. It might be people don't totally realize what Aether Vial does. But if... <laughs> They're I mean, close it has been, to has been good out of the format effectively. So, yeah, I mean, this is probably the best Aether Vile deck in modern, right? It's the one that does the most with it. We can talk about that in a minute as well, right now. But you can't tap out against this this deck because, and you definitely can't let them hang around with a Snoop for a long time if you have a way to kill it. That's that's the really huge thing because, like I said, for the combo to be executed, Snoop has to not have summoning sickness because it needs to be able to tap with the ability from Kiki-Jiki on the top of the deck to start the chain. And so you have to find a way to make that not happen. We will find a way. But, yes. And you, you can find a way, but if people have anywhere near... It's really not hard at all to combo off on turn three with this deck in no interaction land. Like, there are, there are lots of ways to have this happen. It's not that hard to draw the two combo cards. So just be careful if you're playing against it, and also... You know, just don't tap out against it. Four is Aether Vial can be good sometimes, especially in a deck like this that's not only using it for ramp, it's also using it for bringing pieces in at instant speed. And so hand in hand with this is you're almost never going to want to move your Aether Vial beyond two mana in this deck, I, I think, right? Because what you're always threatening to do is play Conspicuous Snoop at the end of your opponent's turn and then play Bogart Harbinger during your next turn. So if someone has a turn where they don't leave up interaction, where they seem like they're not really paying attention, and you just flash in Snoop and then go for Harbinger, that's the game right there. So one of the best ways to shortcut all of the this whole thing is playing Snoop on your opponent's turn. And that can only be enabled by Aether Vial. And so to do that, when you're thinking about this deck, leave Aether Vial on low tokens. Don't do, you know, don't 
don't push it up for no reason or have a plan of when you're moving it from two to three in particular about because glass beads? cards on three aren't that good. Can I put more glass beads on it. Yeah. Don't put more glass beads on it. Stop with the beads. We all know that you have a good bag of beads, but you don't have to share them off <laughs> right now. But that, that brings a whole other dimension to the, the, the combo, honestly, that I think people kind of miss or especially when the deck is not around in the meta a lot, people miss it. And then the last thing is the trickier kind of player that you are, I think the more you're going to enjoy this deck. You know, trying to work out when to get a two-for-one with your munitions expert, like I was talking about. Trying to find the best time to use Sting Scourger. When to pay the echo cost on your War mar- Marshal, and when to not pay the echo cost on your War Marshal. Like, all of these little things What's your heuristic, are... heuristic, Dave? Give us the heuristic for when to pay the echo cost. I, I don't have that. That's the stuff that I am not going to do because we're going to get letters from the Goblin Discord if I do make assertions about those kind of things. What I will say is it might feel like there's not that many decisions on this deck when you just look at it or maybe even when you play against it. But I think this is something that has a lot of kind of fun things that you can do, novel lines that you can discover to win. And so I think that rewards you if you are a person who likes to be creative and resilient and find a way. This can reward you. So let's leave it. That's what I think. Well, look at that. What a nice way to end our episode. On a happy note, there is a sleeveable tribal deck out there after all. Thank you, Shane and Dave. And I will thank myself, Stan. Oh, thank for, you, Stan. For for going through the gauntlet. Shane, you're gone the next couple of weeks. We're going to miss you. Oh, that's correct. Yes, I will be. I'll be overseas and not thinking about magic at all. Unless I go to like an Italian store that has a bunch of you know cool packs and I just have to get... Something international. True or false? Are you meeting Andre Mangucci at his house for lunch? Sometime? No, we're gonna lunch and we're gonna, power we're gonna go draft. out for uh, a Neapolitan za. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, don't, I, I don't even know where where Mangucci lives in Italy. So I'm just gonna be in, in Naples and Rome. So hopefully one of those two places. Andrea, hit Shane up. Sponsor our podcast. Yeah, you should look up LGSs in advance. Maybe you can find a modern tournament to to. Yeah, my wife would love that. To, to horn dog, just to add, inject a little drama. Is there anything that you don't want us to do while while you're gone for the next couple of weeks? And Dave and I hold the fort. Like, should we not do a deck dive on? I don't, I don't think you should, I don't think you should do any any good content. Just you know, do our usual, average at best. And now you get. I mean, you'll kill it. Well, here's what I don't want you to do: don't interview Saffron Olive again. Like last time I was gone, didn't get to talk to Seth in that one bonus episode. That was a bummer. Aw. Yeah. Now we have to reach out to Seth and see if we can get him on one time in the next couple of weeks just for yeah. just for yeah. spite. No, you 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 guys have fun. You do what you want. And I'll I, I will be downloading and listening. I will burn and verify this podcast. <laughs> Thanks for leaving us the keys, Dad. Yeah. Well, safe travels, have fun. Uh send pics. Send a postcard. But for now, that wraps up this week's show. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. You can also reach out to us over on Twitter at the dive down, all one word, or via email at thedivedown at gmail.com. You can also support the show over at patreon.com slash thedivedown. You can even support the show while playing Magic with a manager subscription. Get 10% off your first two months of renting Magic Online cards with promo code thedivedown15. Play with all of these new lords. Prove us wrong or Dave right or Dave wrong. 
You can also get some amazing shaving soaps, body soaps, fragrances, and more over at Barrister and Man. If you use promo code the Dive Down 15, you'll get 15% off your first order from Barrister and Man. And we don't get a kickback from this, but we just want to share the joy of paper cards with you. Nerd Rage Gaming offers 8% off your paper order. If you use promo code Dive8, get cards, play magic, have fun, live forever. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and be a low.